Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have uh, as my guest, Tyler Cartwright. He's the uh, founder of KetoGains.com, K-E-T-O-G-A-I-N-S.com. Tyler, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it looks like you talk to a lot of people like I do, uh, you know, in the keto world and health world. So what, what's the premise of Keto Gains? Where did it start? And what's your background in it? So the the origins actually go back to... Uh, I've jokingly referred to him as the muscular Mexican for a long time, but a guy named Luis Villasenor who actually created the Keto Gains brand because one of the challenges that you know, he saw out in the landscape of the keto community was that so much of what we believe about keto or you know what, what can be accomplished in ketogenic dieting was predicated on endurance athletes or on epileptics or on cancer or you know, oncologic care, that sort of thing. And nobody was really thinking about how weightlifters and bodybuilders and people that were chasing after physique goals or strength goals were using the diet to cut and make weight way back in the day. And so there was this thought process of, I wonder what's possible in that space. And, you know, Luis actually came from a background of having been an overweight child and then becoming, you know, an anorexic college kid uh, decided to go right. veg vegan whatever of course so many people do in college um and uh ended up looking at a tease him he looked like the you are not alone era michael jackson at the time and then you know, he proceeds now to, to maintain it about 11 percent body fat and bigger than two of most people these days um you know my end of the spectrum was the other side i had actually gotten up to about 500 pounds now I had a background in powerlifting and football and tennis and all kinds of athletic stuff, but I went on a different sort of diet in college that mostly involved uh, uh, fermented grains. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that diet, but after so long, the body just puts you to sleep because it's Hmm. so potent and powerful. Um, What what kinds of of foods were on that diet, by the way? Just out of um, <laughs> it depends on whether I had started drinking early in the morning or in the afternoon, but uh, there weren't too many things off the uh, I'm kidding, you know, I'm off, off the list. Yeah, <laughs> so you call the Anheuser diet and donuts. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, the the absolute diet, but I'm pretty sure the absolute vodka people would sue me <laughs> if I did it. Um, right, right. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. Um, so I came at it from the perspective of I was nearly dead. I mean. Blood glucose was sky high, had an A1C north of 11. Um, you know, my, my father and I, I grew up kind of hunting, fishing, and trespassing, to quote the uh, the great Ernest T. Bass. And, uh, you know, we were at our, our cabin at our farm, and he, he, you know, we got up, and I got up ready, and he looks at me, and he says, you know, I just sat up most of the night crying. And I said, well, why is that? He said... I sat and counted, and every time between your breaths, you didn't breathe for 30 to 90 seconds, and I found myself wondering if that was the last time you were going to breathe. And, you know, there, there was some, there was obviously legitimate concern for my well-being, and, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a science geek to begin with, and so I, I sort of 
started researching the ketogenic diet because I had friends that were doing it and I wanted to tell them how stupid they were and how dangerous it was. And I went, wait a minute, this may not be something for everybody, but this is in no way harmful. And so I figured, how could I lambast something if I didn't try it? And I tried it badly, had a little bit of success, regain, success, regain, like a lot of people do. And then finally, uh, kind of got my head out of a different body part and nailed it. And 11 years later, I'm about 300 pounds lighter than I was when I started. And, uh, you know, I've maintained it that weight for a couple of years now. And um, honestly, we looked out at the landscape of things. What was originally just a bunch of malcontent keto nerds that like to lift weights, people started coming to us and saying, hey, can you help us to figure out how to grow muscle and how to get strong and stay in the realm of being ketogenic or low carb because, hey, we, we want to do what you guys have done. But every time we do it, we keep failing. And we realized there were these marriages. And I think Amy Berger talked to you about this at one point uh, during your interview with her about this, this marriage to percentages and ratios and things that came out of yep. keto's background in epileptic care and oncologic care. They really have no basis in, athlete, you know, in athletes or in people who are trying to chase after leaner physiques or higher performance especially when you consider the fact that the risk of too little protein just vastly outweighs the risk of too much, if there is even realistically a thing of too much. And so there is this... Go ahead. You know what I'd like to see, actually? And this is just my observations around town, but whenever I see, especially men that are vegan, they look awful, pale, pasty, pudgy, mm -hmm. with uh, man boobs. And whenever I see people that are, you know, paleo or keto, especially, they look pretty ripped. So I think it'd be interesting yeah. to have a poster or a comparison side by side of you know 100 <laughs> vegan and 100 paleo or keto people, and I think you'd, you'd see a huge difference. Well, one of the the biggest challenges that you know there's uh, there's an intelligent way to eat just almost any way that you want to eat. There's an intelligent and a stupid way to eat paleo. There is an intelligent and a stupid way to eat keto. There are intelligent and stupid ways to eat vegan or vegetarian. Uh, if you're willing to put forth the effort to try and find mixed plant proteins and to supplement from you know, uh, laboratory-produced leucine so that you're not dealing with leucine from animal derivative uh, or animal derivations, rather, you are, you're able to succeed at life. But so often, being, being vegan is either a, mora, a moralistic stance or it is sort of this rejectionist personality type that's just manifesting itself in this way. Um, but, you know, in the same way, and I'll catch flack from my carnivore friends for saying this, but while I do think that this idea of eating no plant products has a place and, and a purpose for some people with very specific metabolic conditions, realistically, veganism is to vegetarianism very much what the carnivore movement is to, to keto or paleo. It is an extreme position. Now, whether it's warranted because of the context of the individual, it's a totally different conversation, right? I don't think I'd want to get into a stare down with a guy like Sean Baker. That man's built like a tank. But for every Sean Baker, I can show you somebody that's eating carnivore and is wasting away because they've got other contexts really? or other medical or clinical conditions. And it's the same sort of thing sure. with vegetarians or vegans. You know, I can show you 50 that look emaciated and sick, and I can show you 50 that could out bench press me on my best day. So it's kind of this this scenario where I think there's there's relative 
puts and takes to both sides. You know, you'll, you'll hear us talk about context just an awful, awful lot because everything is doable within the right framework and the right context for sure. Well, what are, what are some examples of how to do keto right or wrong, for instance, and then maybe an example since we're kind of on that side of the equation, uh, how to do carnivore right or wrong that you've seen? Sure. Um, so, so the first thing that I would say with regard to doing keto right or wrong, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, the single best thing that you can possibly do is to eat a, what I would call like a lightly refined diet. I mean, clearly anytime you're slaughtering an animal or cutting a plant or whatever that is technically processing. But what we don't want to do is turn everything that we consume into a shake or into a powder or into some kind of liquid form. We want to chew. We want to digest our food. We want to do that. And there's there's actually research data on the idea that satiety factors go way up when we actually have to work harder to digest our food and when protein is a larger percentage of the total energy content of the food that we consume. So making sure that your micronutrient needs in terms of your vitamins and your minerals are covered and appropriate, but also ensuring that your macronutrient needs relative to what your goals are, are covered. If you want to be in a fat loss mode, you want to be eating a hypocaloric diet. If you're somebody who's wanting to bulk because you're smaller, you need to be eating more calories than what you're actually consuming or, or, or burning through the course of the day. None of that is is revelatory, right? But on the flip side of that coin, when we talk about ways to do this wrong, um, you know, Dr. Atkins uh, was quoted as having said before, I never said don't count calories, or I never said that calories don't count. I simply said don't count calories. Now, I would take some issue with that for people like myself who have a history of dysfunctional eating. Um, I'm and I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth on that topic. But with regard to this nonsense that's pervaded the keto space that you can eat as many calories as you want and you won't gain weight, that's just utter and sheer nonsense. And people want to try and do these N equals one citizen scientist movement kind of experiments. And I like that stuff. But the truth of the matter is the plural of an anecdote is not data. You have to be able to compare the data. And for that to happen, you have to have controlled circumstances and context. And so there is just this this unique challenge that exists where people probably, at least initially, there is some metabolic inefficiency that allows people to eat more calories. And a ketogenic diet can be, especially if protein is placed in primary importance, extremely satiating. And then you get into the fact that it regulates hormones that stimulate hunger substantially better than more of the standard American or Western diet for people that are metabolically dysfunctional. And you you have a recipe for spontaneous decreases in calorie intake, more satiety for longer periods of time, um, and honestly, a very, very diminished, if any, level of performance for most average Joes or weekend warriors. Um, so, so in the keto space, that's a, a particular problem um, that, that I see is that people tend to delve into taking a relatively scientific thought and turning it into almost pseudoscientific nonsense. And that's what's frustrating is when I engage with folks in academia, they immediately want to break out their pitchforks when they talk to people like Amy or like Dr. Westman or like myself or Dr. Ted Naiman or others. Um, and then they realize, like, wait a minute, he's not saying heretical nonsense, right? Like, you know, and so there's almost this, like, rear end sniffing like dogs do when they meet each other before you can finally lay down the, 
That's you know, lay down the pitchforks and put the jaw lines down and stop snarling at one another and actually talk. Mm. Um, well, quick question you know, about the, the, the calories. Do you think even mm-hmm. with uh, so even with keto, do you think people need to be in a substantial calorie deficit in order to lose weight, or do you think that they're uh, it's more tolerable Absolutely. to have more calories than keto? So here's my position, uh, and this is a complete hypothesis on my part on the back end. So I'll start with the stuff that's pretty well established in science, and then I'll get into Tyler's insane theories uh, towards the end. But I'll send up a little flare when I tell you I'm going to jump over the shark. But, uh, okay. but you know, f- from the calorie perspective, it's difficult because people will say, I don't count calories and I lose weight on keto. Well, without knowing how many calories you're consuming, it's very, very difficult for us to really assess that statement. The clinical research that I've been exposed to or read indicates that people who are obese or overweight tend to underreport their calories on food frequency questionnaires by about 40%, give or take, depending on the study. So if they tell you they're eating 2,000 calories, then in reality, they're probably eating 2,800, you know, 2,600 to 3,000 calories a day. And so when they tell you, I don't count calories and I lose weight or I eat the same number of calories and now I'm losing weight, if they're not, you know, Lord Byron's quote and Luis is famous for regurgitating it, that which is not measured cannot be managed, right? There is a certain element of, we don't know what you were eating and we don't really know what you are eating. So there's no real way for us to take that data and do anything with it. Um, But what I will say is there is probably an inefficiency that happens when somebody shifts drastically the way in which they eat. Um, you know, there are enzymes that need to be upregulated in terms of their production. There are receptors that need to, to you know, to, to be engaged that, that need to be replicated. There are um, actually, for example, like with, with, you know, ketosis, one of the things chronic ketosis is noted for is an upregulation in the number of mitochondria inside of cells. That takes time. And until that really happens, there is probably an inefficiency in the diet in terms of maybe somebody is, let's say, 90 to 95% metabolically efficient with their food intake. They may dip down to like 80, 85%. Again, this is where I'm starting to get into my hypothesis and conjecture. Okay. I do, I would suggest this though. A ketogenic diet is at its core a starvation mimetic diet, meaning we are manipulating the foods that we take in in a way that mimics the hormonal profile of somebody who is semi starved or completely starved. That's what ketones are for. They're sparing glucose to keep you alive for longer in the hopes that you will find some food. Now, the fact that we're eating calories and therefore will not starve to death is sort of a biohack at its core. Now, that being said, if the whole point of ketosis and the whole approach that we're taking is to engage these starvation responses and to free the body to more readily use the fat, either from our plate or the fat that's stored on our rear ends, um, for energy, wouldn't it make sense to be as judicious and efficient as humanly possible? to squeeze every last calorie that you possibly can out of those things. What's intriguing, and it was actually something that was presented on at Low Carb USA, was this position that a lot of ketogenic dieters will go into this diet, they don't count calories, they just eat keto, and they have this big drop in weight. And then after three to six months, they sort of trough out. They kind of hit the bottom of an inverted bell curve. And then slowly, they just start gaining weight again and gaining weight again. And people will say, 
well, that's just recidivistic behavior. They're just going back into the way that they always used to eat. And to some degree, I would be inclined to say, yeah, probably. But I would also conjecture that when I talk to those same people who were eating this way and having that experience, and they're saying, I'm still eating exactly the same things. I'm not doing any cheat meals. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm not literally the same things that made me lose weight or it's now making me gain weight. You kind of have to raise the flag and say, is the body becoming almost hyper-efficient or hyper-effective at squeezing every ounce, every molecule of energy? And yes, I realize molecules. For those who want to pick up their pitchforks, energy is not a molecule. But um, you know, are they squeezing out every drop that they possibly can from the stored body fat and the food that we consume? Is it potential that initially in you know, the ketogenic state, the reason that people lose weight so easily is the body is just inefficient? And so to answer your question, do I believe you have to be in a hypocaloric deficit? Yes, but is inefficiency part of the model of what defines that whole energy balance you know, mantra? I think it probably is. But I do think that we get super efficient over time as ketogenic dieters. And I think there's a a place for an argument towards something like a metabolic flexibility model that seasonally moves into and out of a ketogenic state. Now, I'll, I'll catch fire for being a co-founder of a company called Keto Gains that teaches people how to eat a ketogenic diet and saying there's a place for toggling into maybe a lower carb paleo and then back in. But well, what, have, uh, what have you observed? You know, how many people do you feel like you've observed ballpark and how many of them lose weight and stay low? And how many of them start to slowly creep back up or plateau and creep up? Well, interestingly, it's, it's hard to, to say keto-specific because rates of recidivism in diet are, you know, 60% plus in the first year upwards to 90 plus percent by the third year in terms of weight regain. And that's true of almost any dietary intervention. Um, but with respect to a ketogenic diet, if people are not diligent and intentional and they have a history of long periods of obesity in their adulthood, meaning they've been fat most of their adult life, and then they've lost substantial weight, almost every one of those individuals that I've ever had a conversation with, um, with I would say probably the exception of 10 to 15% will at some point have to start being intentional with their calorie intake or they will start to regain weight. And I will point out that so 10 to 15%, so 80, 80% long-term beats the pants off of traditional low-calorie, just eat less, move more dieting. So I'm happy with that number, but I still think it could be better if we would couple the power of an ancestral or a ketogenic diet to actually really paying attention to energy balance and appreciating the importance of calories. So how would you say someone can lose weight with a keto diet and then keep it off and maintain at the level they want to get there, get to the level they want to get to and then maintain it? The, the people that seem to be able to do it naturally don't seem to have dysregulated uh, satiety signaling. The people that do seem to struggle seem to have increased you know, in increased, I would say, resistance to the sensation of satiety. That's just an, again, this is anecdotal on my part, but it's observational having worked with over 2,000 clients at this point and become as much unlicensed shrink as I am personal trainer and, and you know, life coach or whatever term we want to use. Um, I really think that they would be better off to start with best practices of 
eating at a moderate deficit, you know, maybe something 10, 15%, maybe 20% for somebody who's very large, um, maybe a little steeper than that if they're working with a coach actively where they've got the accountability and somebody who can talk them down off of the Snickers bar ledge. Um, those individuals would probably do well to be in that space and at least a few days a week to weigh and measure everything that they're eating just so they have in their mind what six ounces of steak looks like, what you know, 100 grams of green beans looks like, what so that you know that, that they don't get that sort of scope creep that happens on a plate because the size of the plate will drive the the perception of the size of the food. Um, I think that would be a good place to go. I think another thing to do would be to, as bizarre as it's going to sound, start reading things around Buddhist uh, teachings or even Stoic philosophy, talking about the appreciation of discomfort and suffering. Because there is a certain element of if your intention is to lose weight and to keep it off, and you are somebody whose body seems wired to stay overweight, there is a certain right. element of this is not pleasant that you're going to have to deal with for quite some time. And the sooner you can make peace with that, honestly, the better off you are. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned before that people that are overweight for most of their adult life, um, they're more susceptible to gaining back weight from what you've seen. And you also mentioned that it uh, takes time, for instance, to build up mitochondria from uh, you know, keto eating. So what are, what are those time scales uh, just generically? What do you think they are? You know, it's difficult sometimes because that what people were lovingly call keto adaptation seems to be kind of an arbitrary moving target. I think for people that have been athletic in their past, those people seem to adapt more quickly, but the chances are it's because they already had a lot of upregulated you know, numbers of mitochondria and a lot of those other factors were already in effect. And so they didn't have to wait quite as long. And those people typically are back to performing at their top and standard within three to four, maybe six weeks. It's not a really long period of time. Um, individuals who are a little more, a little more metabolically deranged, somebody who's insulin resistant or type two diabetic, somebody who's uh, poorly controlled hypothyroid or, or Hashimoto's, for example, um, it's, it's a little bit more of a crapshoot there, but typically those people seem to take, you know, three months plus to really get back to a level of, it's not the energy necessarily, but it's kind of that sustained energy and that ability to go and do the things they used to do without feeling like they just got dragged through, you know, through the weeds. The one thing I will say that exacerbates the issue is people really underappreciate the amount of electrolyte lost in a ketogenic lifestyle. And so they underconsume sodium and potassium and magnesium specifically. And a lot of that drag is less mitochondrial upregulation. It's less enzymatic function. And it's more, hey, you just aren't consuming enough sodium. You aren't consuming enough potassium. You aren't consuming enough magnesium. You aren't consuming enough calcium. You aren't consuming, you know, enough chloride. You know, you've got these, these, ionic pathways and channels and things that just don't get the love that they need when your body is shedding fluid like crazy because your insulin levels are chronically low. Um, now, shifting gears back to the weight gain side of things, um, you know, typically speaking, that, that swing tends to happen for people that are going to go back into a weight regain. Just from my experience, about 
six months to a year after they begin the diet. Um, and, and it's one of those things where I think it's, it's really challenging for people to have rapid, rapid success, you know, 100, 200 pounds lost in a six month or a one year span of time. And then they get super frustrated because, again, that's all those things that brought them to that point don't then sustain them at that point. And, I, you know, when I've spoken with these folks, they'll tell me openly, I'm just aggravated as I can be, needing all the same things, I'm doing all the same things, and I'm getting fatter. And then we start looking at their life and we realize that they used to walk four miles and for no good explanatory reason, they now just sit at home all day. Or they used to go out and, you know, horse around with their friends or their kids and they sit in front of the television now because they're, you know, exhausted. Their body seems to be predisposed to being overweight and it's almost dragging them back into trying to be overweight again um, by downregulating what they call non-activity exercise thermogenesis or, or NEAT or non-exercise activity thermogenesis rather. Sorry. Um, you know, so, so there's this NEAT factor that's there and it just seems that the body gravitates towards just being lazier to try and put that back on. I will say that there is some evidence of people that sustain that change beyond about three to five years. The body seems to almost go through a period of reset. Um, and those people tend to function more like people who are naturally wired to be lean. But that data, it's so hard to find people that have sustained massive weight loss for that long a period of time. It's hard to replicate those studies. So there's not much data out there at all. So what do you tell people that have been you know, for six months or a year and now they're starting to gain back? Like, What's your protocol to help? Generally speaking, we're going to take a look at what they're eating, right? We need to take a look at actually weighing and measuring for some period of time. Um, how much are you actually consuming in a day? Uh, what should you be consuming? We want to make sure that we're working in unison with their physician, with their physician, with a nutritionist, if they're working with one, to really try and figure out, are they getting all the micronutrients they need? Are they getting sufficient protein for any clinical diagnosis they may have or, or any, uh, you know, any sort of genetic or genomic factor that they've got going on that might necessitate for example, methylated B12 or more protein or less pork or more whatever, um, we really start to get kind of down into the weeds at that point if somebody has been really crushing it and then all of a sudden they're just not. Um, and really just, you know, we want to make sure that if they're starting that weight regain that we're really assessing, have their lifestyle factors changed? How are they sleeping? Are they recovering well? Is there stress going on at work or at home that they weren't dealing with before? You know, have they picked up an alcohol or a drug habit uh, because people that used to overeat, that's a coping mechanism. You take that away and people tend to gravitate mm. towards other coping mechanisms, right? So, you know, so we really try and figure out what's going on at a sort of holistic level and help that person to, uh, to straighten that path a little bit. And generally speaking, we've been fairly successful at doing it. I wouldn't by any means claim that we've been 100% successful, but realistically, the only thing that you can control after you've eaten or if you've structured your diet in a way that meets the body's needs and also doesn't cause hormonal fluctuations that trigger overeating is to then say, hey, let's just ratchet down calories and figure out where you are. There is counterintuitively also an argument for sort of reversing that process and taking that person back to what would have been their maintenance calories, letting them gain a little bit of weight, not much, but letting them gain some weight and actually increase their metabolic capacity, their metabolic rate for a period of time, maybe six weeks or 12 weeks, 
and then bringing that person back into a caloric deficit, back into tracking, weighing, and measuring everything, and trying to drive the pathway a little faster, a little further, a little further, because it seems that, that really does help to overcome some of the the body's natural set points and responses to chronic hypochloric dieting. What about exercise? What about exogenous ketones? What about um, intermittent fasting? Any of these tools enough to get people over the hump? Or it really just comes well, down to you have to engage the, the, in caloric restriction or cycling? I mean, what, are there any other tools in your toolbox? Or what tools are in your toolbox? Um, Typically speaking, really looking at what somebody is eating, not so much just how much somebody is eating, both in terms of the massive calories, but the macronutrients, but also the content of the diet, right? Are they somebody whose body just responds really poorly to, for example, nightshades or somebody who doesn't respond well to legumes or somebody who's got a, a specific issue with inflammation around pork or whitefish or whatever, um, the, the challenge with that is it almost becomes sort of the old AIP approach, you know, the autoimmune paleo stuff where you're really just removing a, a food item from the diet and going, okay, let's leave it here for a few weeks and see how I feel and how I respond. It's slow and it's methodical and it's frustrating, but it can be very, very effective. Um, that, that's one strategy to kind of use there. Um, you had mentioned exogenous ketones, and one thing that I would point out is is I do think that they have their place for epileptic care, for oncologics, for neurodegenerative diseases. Um, I also think that for performance potentially, although I really can't find any clinical support of this, I've used them personally and had clients who have used them around really long duration training sessions. And I do think that especially coupled with maybe five to 10 grams of dextrose powder, they do really well for performance sustaining performance, I guess I should say, not increasing performance. Um, but one thing I would caveat here is that for purposes of fat loss, it's interesting to point out that ketones have calories. And you know, people tell me, well, I take this ketone drink and, and I don't feel hungry for an hour or two. And I'm like, well, yes, because you've consumed calories. That's crazy. Um, but I would also point out two things. One, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate actually acts directly on adipocytes or fat cells and tells them, hey, no thanks, we don't need any more triglyceride being secreted as free fatty acid. So it downregulates this, this enzyme called hormone-sensitive lipase and tells it to slow down its work. It's actually the, the same sort of response that chronic hyperinsulinemia actually generates. So interestingly- Can you translate that a bit? What, what is it Okay, do? sure. Um, so beta-hydroxybutyrate acts very much like insulin on fat cells at high levels. So anything above, I mean, the, the papers that I've seen have tested at around two or three millimole. The, the body actually slows its secretion or, or reduces its secretion of stored fat in the presence of beta-hydroxybutyrate, even when insulin is controlled, meaning that um, beta-hydroxybutyrate alone actually tells the fat cells to stop secreting stored body fat. It is a, it you have to remember could, the, it can slow your weight loss if you have too much of it or if you have any of it. Exactly. It, exactly. Um, you know, I don't think that a little bit's necessarily going to be harmful at any stretch of the imagination, but I've had conversations with people who say, well, I drink four or five of those drinks a day. And I find myself going, wow, that's, that, that's a lot. Um, so what happened? What know, are you observing those people? They just gain I mean, typically, typically else, speaking, or? typically speaking, it's one of two things. Um, 
when you artificially inflate beta hydroxybutyrate levels above what somebody naturally gravitates towards, one thing that they will report if they're being completely intellectually honest is mild to moderate nausea. And one of the body's responses to mild to moderate nausea is actually to decrease hunger signal. And so people will say, I take these products and all of a sudden I'm not hungry anymore. Well, they have calories on the one hand, but on the other hand, I would also point out that being mildly nauseous is actually a really good strategy for not eating as much. Um, there's actually, I vaguely remember somebody sharing with me a while back a paper on microdosing Ipecac or, or a hypothesis piece on, on microdosing Ipecac as a means to actually cause spontaneous reduction in calorie intake. Um, I think that sounds absolutely revolting, but it is something that at least has been conjectured in the past. Um, but one thing that I would say is, is then secondarily, beta-hydroxybutyrate actually causes the pancreas to secrete insulin. So when you raise BHB, you're actually raising circulating insulin levels. It's part of the body's check and balance to keep a person from becoming non-diabetic ketoacidotic. So if you don't, if you don't want to become ketoacidotic, which nobody wants to because you get super sick and then you die, um, insulin well, so that would, slows that, that would tell me down. That, uh, that would tell me that exogenous ketones probably shouldn't be paired with eating you know, before or after I would say, would raise the insulin. Well, remember that, that DKA specifically actually requires high insulin, or excuse me, high, uh, high, glucose, high glucose levels in circulation and also high ketone. So it would depend on what that person was eating necessarily. But what I would say is while the ketone salts are pretty self-limiting in the respect that they carry a really big electrolyte load behind them, especially sodium, potassium, uh, uh, and then I believe calcium is the other binding agent there. Um, when, those, when those things are consumed in high doses like they are in exogenous ketones, you're going to urinate more frequently. Um, so you're actually shedding the body of those excess ketones pretty rapidly. One of the concerns that I do have with ketone esters coming onto the market is they hit, I make it sound like it's a drug, but they hit really hard, really fast, and they stick around for a really long time. Mm. And one of my, my genuine concerns is that culture of some is good, therefore more is better, and people loading up on you know, ketone esters um, and really trying to, to, to figure out is somebody going to die? I mean, it, it would be very, very difficult with exogenous ketones as a salt to get to a point where you took so much that you would genuinely run the risk of becoming you know, harmed in any way. Right. I'm not really right. sure the same can be said for esters, especially yeah. if somebody's trying to use them yeah. while also not eating a ketogenic diet. So when they go off the rails on keto and think they can fix it by just taking esters, or right. you know, chugging more fat or whatever to try and sh you know deal with the ratios or what have you. I, I just I find myself really concerned about the future of what could be a great product. I mean, I genuinely like if I've got to sit down for six hours and be a hundred percent dialed in. I've got yeah. a I've got a shelf full of exogenous ketones sitting over there, and I will absolutely use them. Um, sure. But I don't think that they're a very useful product for fat loss. And people will say but I lost weight using this product. And we'll say you lost weight because you fixed your hormones and you fixed your calorie intake. 
the ketones were a byproduct or a mechanism of that. It's no different than saying I lost weight due to this massive cocaine habit. Um, have, you, cocaine have you tried to make you lose weight? Yeah. What's that? Have you, have you tried the ketone, ketone esters yet? I have not. Um, I've actually been around a few folks when they have, and I've watched their, their, you know, their test data off of blood testing and breath testing. And, and it's interesting. Uh, I've been told they taste like, uh, uh, the the devil's stool, I guess, is probably the, the <laughs> nicest way to put it. But uh, I have not had the opportunity to test them yet. And when somebody says, "Here, this tastes awful. Try this," I'm not real inclined to give it a shot. But uh, right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's just that's just me. Um, yeah, I, I do think, and I, and I want to stress everything. You know. Yeah, my grandmother used to say, you know, a place for everything and everything in its place. And I think it's the same kind of thought process for using exogenous ketones, for using dextrose powder around training, for using uh, whey protein around resistance training, for when to reduce and for when to increase protein consumption, for when to reduce and increase fat consumption, for when, you know, for when training becomes overtraining. There's just context that's wedged right in the middle of all of this stuff and we get so fixated in this community on you know what was a great movement with like the if it fits your macros movement to talk people off of a ledge became this sounding board of hyperbolic straw man nonsense about how every calorie is a calorie well energetically that's this that's true but physiologically that's really that's not really a truism um, it's only true insofar as the net effect on weight gain. Um, you know, then the keto thing has come along and everybody is so fixated on how we're going to fix insulin and we're going to deal with all of these factors and there is some success. And so now you've got charlatans who are invading the space and everybody's got to roll out a product that says keto this or keto that or sneaks BHB or ACAC or something into the title of a product to make a a quick sale or turn a book around or whatever. And it's the same thing that happened right. to the paleo community as well. And honestly, I look at this landscape and think we're all saying 80% the same stuff. Yeah. And I just think if we would all sit down and everybody just put their egos aside for a minute, we'd realize that the answer to the questions of what make us obese and what make us lean and how we can go from one to the other is super, super complicated, and it's not going to be solved by I fixed insulin any more than it's going to be solved by a calorie is a calorie any more than it's going to be solved by just eat less, move more. All those things mm. go into this giant semi-open system that is the human body, and you know the, the biggest part of all of it is that stuff that sits between your ears, because we're a pretty messed up generation, but that's probably a launching point for another hour's worth of discussion. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. What about, um, uh, what about intermittent fasting? Do you see that as a useful tool to help people keep losing or lose? You know, do you suggest it? I do. And I don't, I don't really have an issue with something like a 16, eight or an 18, six kind of a window for intermittent fasting. I think that there are a lot of the benefits of longer term fasting that you can get through IF that don't require a lot of the costs of long term fasting, right? With regard to lean mass losses and and you know some of the the challenges that that come like with uh, things like microbiota gut die off that happens when you go through long periods of fasting as well. Um, so I think oh, okay. you can get eighty, you know, you can get kind of like 
60, 70% of the results with only 50% of the negative consequences or side effects. Um, and people will sing the praises of IF or sing the praises of extended fasting and act like there are no consequences. But even an economist will tell you there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? There are absolutely consequences to to extended fasts, but there are also benefits. I tell people often, I typically about three or four times a year will go through about a three-day fast where I don't eat anything. Um, I'll drink water. I won't do coffee. I don't do anything, but I literally don't do anything. I don't go to the gym. I don't go to jujitsu. I pretty much just find something on Netflix that I've been meaning to binge watch, and that's the extent to which I get up and I move. Um, I may spend a little time in meditation or reading, but that's, I don't do a whole lot active because your immune system is basically hand grenaded at that point. Your body's losing lean mass. You are in a pretty compromised state for things like injury. I'm just not a big fan of tempting fate in that respect. Um, But in terms of being able to bolster immune response, being able to, um, uh, to increase autophagy apart from I will point out that people talk about autophagy and fasting as if like autophagy is an on-off, like it's an on-off switch. It's not. And one of the most potent ways that we know you can upregulate autophagy is actually resistance training. But nobody talks about Mm. doing that. They only want to talk about not eating as a means to upregulate autophagy. So I would Mm. throw them both together and say, I think that both together done properly can absolutely increase uh, autophagic response in a human being. So I do think there are absolute benefits that are there. I don't necessarily know that they relate to dietary outcomes of weight, but I do think that in terms of overall health, there are some great benefits that are there. The one thing that I would say is with respect to weight, a lot of people find it very hard in eating one meal or two meals a day to shoehorn 2,000 or 3,000 calories into such a short feeding window. And so I do think it has some potential benefits there. I would say that I have seen some studies on middle-aged women specifically where going into intermittent fasts or into long-term fasting seems to trigger um, binge eating episodes. So I'm always Hmm. very reticent to say um, people should really know where they're at mentally and spiritually before they engage in something like that. And they need to have some sort of an accountability buddy that can look at them and be like, you haven't eaten in three days and you look like a Coke fiend. Listen, we we need to talk and you gave me permission to say these hard things. Stop this nonsense. Um, You know, because otherwise it's super easy to get sucked down the rabbit hole of getting married to the scale. And you're like, I dropped seven pounds in two days. I wonder what can happen if I go 40 days without eating. Mm. Um, right, yeah. And I have a I have a thought on what's going to happen is the minute you eat anything substantive after 40 days, you're probably going to die. So, you <laughs> know, I mean, let's let's not. And again, it's back to that some is good, more is better mindset that we seem to have in Western culture. And that's where the problems arise. It's not fasting in and of itself. It's not intermittent fasting in and of itself. It's people who. <laughs> You know, it was 16.8. Then it became, no, 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 18.6 is better. Well, no, 24 is better. And now I'm dealing with people who want to do a 22.2 or a 23.1 split. Uh, and I'm like, every, uh, everything we know, uh, everything uh, we know about protein and, and lean mass rebuilding says that three to four stimulations from leucine per day is ideal. And anything less than what? two can be detrimental. What um, if you're in the military, so, you do like a... 
23, 45, 15 minute. <laughs> Just shuffle it down. Right down. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, there's just so many context dependent things to say. I mean, I've got friends that are in special forces that'll talk about, look, I was going, you know, 30 miles, you know, 40 kilometers a day and eating nothing but, you know, things I would find along the path and whatever animals we can hmm. kill quietly. And, you know, but you see those guys before they leave and when they come back and they're 20 pounds yeah. lighter. Hmm. And at that point, it's like, okay, let's not pretend here. It kept them alive. They lost a bunch of weight. They preserved more muscle than I would have expected, but they right. look like they have a disease. They don't look good when they mm. come back from long-term operations in the field. So, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that, that I guess I would say is that everything that we do in a dietary sense is like a giant game of whack-a-mole. You knock one thing down and something else over here pops up. And, and I, I think we do a disservice when we try to oversimplify something as hugely complicated as human bioenergetics and human physiology, it just never ends well because we end up redu reducing positions down. So for example, and I've, I've heard you mention on the podcast before, you know, the idea of gluconeogenesis and how it gets turned on by increased protein intake. Well, that's not really true. It is always on. It's sort of like turning your faucet on at night when it's cold to make hmm. sure your pipes don't freeze. That's all okay. GNG ever does, ever. And the amount hmm. by which you upregulate it is about 11 to 13% just by becoming ketogenic. Like if you so eat a ketogenic uh, diet, it goes up. And honestly, there's no clinical data that shows that GNG actually increases at a dose response with respect to protein. It actually, the only thing people are basing it on is decreased blood ketones when they test. And that's mm. because protein actually affects ketone levels through anaplerotic action. It doesn't affect them because of gluconeogenesis. In fact, in order to become ketogenic, you actually need gluconeogenesis to be happening. But that's a huge, again, two-hour conversation in human physiology that nobody wants to go down. Well, it sounds like from all the things you've been saying that, uh, you know, whatever you decide to do, keto, paleo, et cetera, you know, in order to make it work long-term, it needs quite a bit of personalized tuning based on you, what you eat, your physiology, your history, you know, a whole bunch of factors. And that's really what makes it work or be sustainable. I think that that's probably fair. I think that there are going to be some genetically blessed people who just can eat whatever and live to be 120 years old and they ate nothing but bacon and bourbon their whole life. You know, but for every one of those people, excuse me, you can run 90 plus people in front of you that go, this person did that and died at 50 or this person died morbidly obese. Um, there's this kind of this, this reality check that we need to go into that uh, um, I'll censor it because uh, it was fairly swear word heavy, but Adam Ali from Physiconomics is quoted as saying, uh, because you eat like an effing a-hole. I think that's censored enough that I won't get you triggered for a, uh, a, uh, a, 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 a explicit lyrics uh, warning here, but uh, that's, that's mm. kind of the biggest challenge. It's like if people would just go back to eating whole foods or relatively lightly refined foods, they would probably solve 80% of the problems that they have. And then if they would meter their carbohydrate intake around their daily activity levels and their actual metabolic needs, 
you would probably take another 10%. And it's really just that final 10% where fine tuning is really going to matter. But for people that are genuinely interested in sort of what's optimal or what's optimum, getting with an expert who can work with you kind of hand in glove to figure that out is going to be realistically kind of the only way short of spending hours and hours and years and years teaching yourself this stuff just to put it into practice in your own life. Hmm. Well, it sounds like there's uh, a ton more knowledge in your head that, uh, you know, it's going to take a long time to get out, but we're, we're close to out of time. What, so for people that, you know, want to know more, and there's a lot of more to know, uh, what, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So we have a website at www.ketogains.com. You can reach out to us there. Um, we've got a really active Facebook community, probably 110 to 115,000 people right now, just depending on the day. It continues to grow by about 1,000 or 2,000 per month. Uh, there's a Reddit community at slash r slash keto games, uh, social media outlets on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at, at, they're all at keto games. So definitely reach out. We love to hear from folks. So if they've got questions, comments, want to get some advice or some guidance, just uh, drop into those places and give us a shout. All right. Well, that's great. Well, Tyler, you know, thanks for all this knowledge. I mean, uh, I really appreciate you coming. No, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.